Welcome all to the London Aesthetics Forum. Uh, before introducing our speaker, I would like to thank the British Society of Aesthetics uh, for their continuing support to the forum. Uh, it is a great pleasure to have Margaret Moore here with us today. Margaret is a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Leeds. Uh, she's currently working with the AHRC project, um, which is called Method in Philosophical Aesthetics, uh, the Challenge from the Sciences. Uh, Margaret <laughs> research interests are uh, in various issues related with um, the philosophy of sound, music perception, and cognitive sciences. And uh, the title of her talk today is Musical Camber Between Ontology and Perception. Thank you. Thank you, Paloma. Thank you, um, London Aesthetics Forum, for inviting me. Um, all right, so this is a fairly new talk, so um, we'll see how much we get to, and I'm looking forward to seeing what kinds of comments and suggestions you have. Um, so what are we doing? Um, so there's two different kinds of questions you can ask when you start doing ontology of music. Um, so some of those of you who are familiar with the literature, um, know the literature on the traditional question, which is what is the nature of musical works. Right. Um, but you might ask another question, which is what's the nature of music? Right. Uh, and that itself is an ontological question and it's one that doesn't get asked as often. Right. So why might you ask the works question? Well, you know, works are ontologically puzzling. Um, why is that? Well, because they're repeatable in performances and playings. They're represented in musical notation. But of course, none, neither of these things are actually identical with the work. So um, we need to know, well, what, what, what exactly is the work such that it's repeatable, such that it's representable, but it isn't, uh, it isn't identifiable with any of those physical objects. Right? Um, so if you're an analytic philosopher who is interested in, in ontological puzzles, then musical works are going to be interesting to you because you're going to want to try to figure out just exactly what kind of entity these things are. Um, but that's not the only reason you might want to ask about the nature of works. Um, works play a role in artistic appreciation and evaluation. Um, so it might be that in order to really understand what's going on when um, we evaluate Beethoven's achievements as he develops a form of the symphony from the, uh, the first symphony to the ninth symphony when he develops sonata form over the course of his piano sonatas, when we try to figure out exactly what he's doing and um, how to assess uh, a work of music, um, we need to know precisely what we're talking about when we're talking about an object, right? So what is it that we're attributing to him? So um, the ontological question is not merely a question for, uh, for metaphysicians. It is also a, a, a question for appreciators. Well, but my, why might you ask the second question, right? Um, so, I feel that there's a danger in only asking about the nature of works. And I mean, there's other philosophers who've, who've, said, who've made these points. Um, so, it's easy to just focus on how the work is different from the score of the performance, 
um, how to individuate one work from another work. Um, but what gets lost is, or at least hasn't been addressed in, in much of the, uh, the literature, is what it is for a work to be a work of music, right? So um, what exactly is music such that there are works as well as non-work instances, right? Um, now, I'm not going to answer that for you. Um, that is going to be a tremendously large project, um, and it encompasses much beyond the scope of what we're going to talk about today. Um, but I'm going to offer some constraints on what an answer has to be, right? So um, here are a few suggestions. Uh, they're merely tossed out suggestions, right? So music is a performance art, but it's also a component of folk traditions. Music is expressive. Um, music is thought to be communicative. Not taking a stance on whether that's true or not, um, or on how it's expressive. Um, music can be both composed or improvised. Music can be combined with other art forms. Music plays an important role in all cultures. And I'm not going to say what role that is. Um, and some of these points are going to have bearing on the ontology of works, but not all of them are going to have immediate bearing on the ontology of works. Fine. However, um, there is one constraint on the second question, the what is the, the nature of music question, that I think is going to have an immediate bearing on the ontology of works question, and that's the motivation for, for my talk. Um, so music consists of sounds. Somewhat contentious definition of music proposed by Edgar Varese, or at least propounded by him, often attributed to him, this claim that music is organized sound. Now, you might say that's a definition only a modernist could love. Um, music, you're only going to think of music as organized sound if you have certain particular compositions in mind, such that you're, you're divorcing music from text, you're divorcing music from any extra musical content, you're divorcing it perhaps even from any cultural context. So if you think of some of Varese's works that are abstract, um, you might think, well, and that there are exp experiments in the composition of putting, putting different sorts of sounds together, you might think, well, that's one reason Varese thinks that. Fine. Um, I'm not here to debate that. However, I think the um, suggestion that music is organized sound does have a core of truth to it. And I think that there's something, it's, it's plausible to say that music is at least organized sound. Whatever else we want to say that it is, such that it's a cultural product, such that it's expressive and so on and so forth, it's at least organized sound, right? So where am I going with this? Simply that Whatever our theory of musical works is going to be, it's got to be constrained about by what's true of musical sounds and the way humans perceive them. Right? Um, so if you end up with an ontology that ignores sound production, ignores sound perception, and is at odds with some of those facts, then that's a reason to question that ontology of works. Um, now, so that I consider to be a constraint on um, ontology of works. Now, so just a little bit in, in the way of overview. Um, 
I'm not going to give you a full-on theory of, uh, of ontology such that we do justice to the nature of sound. I'm going to focus instead on a much smaller question. And so, and that's if you saw my abstract, that's what's there. Um, I'm going to focus on a particular recent view in the ontology of music that um, it's, it's going to be instructive for us to put together the what is music question with the nature of music as sound with the traditional philosopher's way of doing ontology. Um, and so I think when we put these two things together, we're going to see why um, we're going to see a, a limitation and a, a certain characteristic mistake um, in a lot of ontology of music. So, so that's why I'm going about it this way. So, so what you're going to get for the majority of this talk is going to be a criticism of um, Julian Dodd's Tambosonicism. However, um, the lessons to be learned from that are broader and are going to speak to this uh, this relationship between the nature of music and the nature of musical works. So, um, so that's why I'm going here. That's why we have this next, which is um, one traditional way of looking at what works are is this sort of intuitive view, right? So we want works to be repeatable. We want them to be instantiated in performances. Um, and one traditional way of, of talking about this is to say that they are sound structures. All right. So why is this intuitively plausible? Um, captures what each proper performance of a work has in common. Right? Um, the proper is there in parentheses just to acknowledge that um, it's possible to have poor and ill-formed performances of works. Right? So you can miss the next note and you want to still be able to say that it's a performance of that work. Um, the idea of sound structure also accounts for what it is a composer notates in a score. Um, or what an ethnomusicologist would transcribe when um, cataloging a culture's folk tradition. And this idea of the sound structure, the idea that it's a structure, explains how a work is going to be repeatable, just the way any other, um, say, physical structure is something that is, is going to be repeatable. So there's an intuitive plausibility there. Um, so. The question then is, well, what is a sound, is a sonic structure? What is a sound structure? Um, and there are two ways that you can go there. Um, either this structure is abstract or it's something concrete. Um, I'm going to, I, I'm not going to argue that it must be abstract, but I'm going to simply point out that uh, the dominant view for people who want to focus on sound structures is to say, well, these are abstract objects, right? Um, and that they're not identifiable with any particular sound, um, concrete physical object, right? So I'm not going to give you that argument. Um, I'm just going to take this position as um, intuitively plausible position and um, a, a dominant position and work from there to show what happens when we try to try to work with it. Um, so, people who have held, held this view, um, Peter Kivy, um, Jerry Levinson, although he, he amends that to include other things aside from a sound structure, but he discusses that. Um, Walter Storff also talks about 
uh, works as, as abstract. Um, so this is puzzling. Well, what, what exactly do we mean when we say that uh, a musical work is an abstract sound structure? Um, sound, surely, is a concrete thing. Um, so precisely what do we mean when we say that a musical work is an abstract sound structure, right? Um, and there's, there's ways of getting around this. Um, so because I'm going to focus on Julian Dodd's view, um, I'm going to point out that one, one way of solving that um, is just to say, well, look, let's stop talking about abstract sound structures um, and instead talk about the work as being a type. Now, these are in a way getting at the same intuition, namely that the, re the work is not identifiable with any of its instances. Um, it's something that is abstract uh, from those things. Um, and he has metaphysical reasons for saying, okay, an abstract object isn't structured, right? And furthermore, that an abstract object isn't a sound structure, right? For the, for the reasons that that sounds sort of in, um, puzzling, right? To say that, well, you've got something abstract and yet it has a pitch. Well, but only, only physical sounds have pitches. How is it something abstract has a pitch, right? So, um, so, so that's, that's a puzzle. Uh, and a way to get around that, that, that Dodd proposes is just to say, well, no, once you actually understand what a type is, um, you can understand how a work can be a type and how it can be, how we can still get all the elements that we wanted when we were talking about abstract sound structures. Um, but we just, all we need to do now is talk about how types link up with their tokens, with their instantiations and performances and in scores. All right. So, so then the view that we have from Dodd is this. Instead of abstract sound structures, works are types, um, and these are tokened in sound sequence events. Um, you may question some of my wording here. This is Dodd's wording. Uh, why is it a sound sequence event? What on earth is that? Um, well, that is a performance, but it doesn't just have to be a performance, so we want to be able to include um, if I just go, you know, play Verez's Density 21.5 by myself and I don't perform it for anyone. Surely I've played it. That was an instance of the work. Um, and uh, he also wants to leave open the possibility, because of some of the metaphysical commitments about types, right, um, he allows that types are going to be eternal um, and that they're going to exist prior to when a composer might compose a work. Um, so he's going to allow that um, non-standard means might accidentally token the sound structure. If the wind rushes through the trees in a certain way, then and it hits all the right parameters, then it's an instance of, of the work, it's a tokening of the work. Um, many people are going to object to those components of his view. I'm not going to take on that um, element of it. Um, but that's why the, the term here is sound sequence event, so it can encompass any um, auditory phenomenon that hits all the right properties. Right? 
Um, so, and then what kind of type do we have? Is this a type the way, say, um, H2O is a type specifying water? Well, no, because water doesn't have um, ill-formed instances the way um, a, a musical work is going to have um, improper performances that are still members of that type, right? So, so, so instead we have what's known as a norm type. Right? So what's a norm type? Um, it's a type that is going to specify the properties that are normative for a performance to be a performance of that, of that work. Right, so that's what's going to allow us to have proper and form tokens. So um, this is going to be an answer to the ontological question of works. Um, so if we say, well, what's a musical work? Dot is going to tell us, uh, well, it's a type. And what's true of types in the world of metaphysics is true of musical works as types. And this is going to be um, what he considers a default simple view and the best way of accounting for the repeatability of works. The problems arise when we try to go from this ontological view of works to um, the way you get from works to instances. And the way you individuate one work from another work, right? So this is where we have um, the other component of Dodd's view, Tamrosonicism. Um, so he sees himself, he sees his view as having two components, one ontological, which we've just addressed, second, um, individuation conditions, right? Um, so he thinks, well, now that I've told you what a work is, now what you want to know is how we're supposed to distinguish one work from another work, right? So that's the individuation, individuation question. Um, so this is, this is general. Uh, the identity of a type is determined by the condition something must meet in order to be one of its correctly formed tokens, right? So um, types for Dodd are not structured. But what they basically are, are entities that allow for us to determine what conditions their instances have to have, right? Um, thus, you could think of it as a logical collection of properties, but that's not what he's committed to. Nevertheless, you can still think of it as a collection of conditions that are going to tell you what the right instances are going to sound like. So certain properties are going to be normative to a work uh, and to a work's performances. Fine. So the key question now that's going to dis distinguish Dodd's Tambulsonicism from other views um, that take um, this kind of abstract sonic structure type of approach um, are going to be which properties we're going to consider normative in works. So sound structure or type views prior to Dodd are going to take structural properties as indicated in scores to be normative. Um, so what does that mean? Well, you might think that the reason we think of works as abstract structures at all is that we have a way of thinking of works 
through thinking of them as indicated in scores. Right? Um, so what are the right performances? The ones that are in accordance with the score. How do you know what's in accordance with the score? Well, you hit all the notes that the score is indicated. Um, you play all the rhythmic relationships properly so that you've got that dimension of the score done correctly. Um, and you may have other, uh, depending on what kind of score you have, um, you may have other things that the score is telling you to do that you have to do. So um, if you've got an avant-garde work by Brian Ferniho that tries to indicate every possible parameter of, of musical inter interpretation so that you've got every kind of um, articulation determined, dynamic, pacing, absolutely every element of, of the musical sound is determined, um, then a lot more is going to be normative than merely the pitch and durational uh, properties. But you might have a score that's much looser than that. So you might have, um, say, a Baroque work that very loosely specifies anything other than um, pitch properties and rhythmic properties. So you might say, you know, we don't even care what instrument it's played on. Um, and there might be no dynamic markings, and there might be no articulation markings. Right? So if you want to be most general, you're going to say the structural properties that are indicated are the pitch properties and the rhythmic properties. Now, um, the ontologists aren't naive enough to say, well, the work is the score. No, we don't want to say that. There's all sorts of good reasons for saying the work is not the physical object that is the score. Nevertheless, it seems like the way into thinking about it is through finding out what the structural properties are indicated in the score and then abstracting from them, right? Um, and we, we're going to see that we get into some problems when we do that. All right. So, yes, so for many, for many um, philosophers, the structural properties have just been pitch and durational properties, notes and rhythms. Um, the addition that Dodd gives us is timbral properties. So we no longer just have pitch and durational properties, um, we also have timbral properties that are normative in works. I'm going to say a lot more about what that means, but I want to say a few other things first. Um, what's the motivation for Dodd's view? Um, well, so the sonicism part of the timbral sonicism, what is, what's the significance of that? Um, he wants to limit the properties that are normative in a work to acoustic properties. So now you might not want to do that, right? So you might want to say a work is an abstract structure, it has acoustic properties that are normative in it, and those are going to include pitch and duration and, and timbre and so forth. But it's also going to include um, non-acoustic properties that are normative, right? Such as the instrumental means of performance, right? It has to be played on this, this instrument. Um, whether or not it sounds like it is, it has to be played on it. Um, and you might have some other sorts of properties that are constitutive of works in addition to all their acoustic properties. So contextual features might come in. I'm not going to address those 
views simply because I want to focus on um, on the acoustic properties and how how they're going how we're going to get them to work. Okay, so the timbral sonicism works are typed. Uh, they have only they have all and only acoustic properties normative within a work. Why would you want to limit yourself to acoustic properties? Surely there are other things you might want to do. As we said when we said, well, what are some constraints on an ontology of music? You think other things are important to music, such as its cultural status, such as its expressive properties, so on and so forth. Why might you want to say, no, I only care about what the work sounds like? Um, well, Dot is following a couple um, well-known philosophers in this tradition um, and the motivation here is what's known as aesthetic empiricism right and so aesthetic empiricism is a doctrine that is not unique to musical aesthetics but is also uh, common well discussed in in visual arts um, and in in other, other other art forms as well dance for example um, and so that's the claim that all you need to know or to have access to in order to properly appreciate an artwork is what you can perceive in that artwork. Right. So, for example, if to understand what's going on in a painting, you have to know details that you couldn't possibly know when you, unless, unless you, you, you couldn't possibly know by looking at it. Um, then that's, that kind of view that says that's part of the artwork is going to be at odds with aesthetic empiricism. An aesthetic empiricist is going to say what's important to an aesthetic appreciation of the artwork is simply the things that can be perceived right then and there. Right? And so there are those who think, well, that's a plausible way to think about music and the aesthetic component of music, right? Um, that the only thing that's relevant to evaluating a piece of music is how it sounds and what you can hear in it. Um, and so he's following people in that tradition and saying, well, this is, this is plausible. If, if we're going to think about what the aesthetic properties of a work of music are, we're going to limit ourselves to things that can be heard. Okay. So, I want to raise what looks like a prima facie conflict between ontological component of Dodd's view and the individuation component, right? Um, so, as I said when I introduced the idea of a sound structure, um, there's something puzzling about saying that works are abstract sound structures because sound is concrete. Um, and I think what we still run into this problem when we're trying to um, when we're trying to reconcile the ontological view taking works as types with this um, aesthetic empiricism that says the only thing that matters is what's perceptible. Right. So the only thing that's going to matter are the properties that the thing has such that it's a concrete perceptible thing. 
or, or that there are structural properties that are manifest in a sensory realization, right? So um, I can go in more detail about that if, it's, if needed, right? So the way, what's going to sell or, or sink this view is the way that you can reconcile the ontology with the empiricism. And I think what's needed for that is for there to be a way of specifying what these acoustic properties are that are normative in the work. Right? Um, and Dodd is quite unspecific here. Um, he just simply follows those who have said pitch and uh, rhythmic and other structural properties are normative. Um, he just takes that on board and then says, right, but then timbral properties are normative too. So what we need is a way to identify the properties that's going to allow for a range of proper instantiations, but it's going to rule out ill-formed instances. And we have to do this for the structural properties that have been considered by previous philosophers, and we have to find a way to do this for a timbre. Um, and just to put my cards on the table, I'm going to suggest that we can't do that. Okay. So why would you care only about the pitch and the durational properties? Well, for Kivy, he's motivated by, as I alluded to, this Baroque practice of allowing works to be performed on multiple instruments. So once you decide, well, that's what's going to be common to all works, you can leave out the timbral properties. Um, So Dodd is following Roger Scruton as well, um, and he's following uh, Scruton's acousmatic view of musical sound. That's the view that what it is to hear something as music is to hear music making sense in a world of musical logic, such that you hear the direction of a melody. You hear the second theme answering the first. You hear um, resolution of a cadence, right? So you hear things at the level of musical description that's divorced from um, the level of ordinary sounds, uh, cause and effects and sounds, right? So you're not hearing the um, final chord caused by a piano, but rather you're hear hearing it caught as a result of the musical logic that came before it, right? So hearing that it comes from an oboe for Scruton is not necessary to hearing it as musical. Rather, what's necessary is just hearing the, the musical logic of um, musical constructions, right? And so, so Don is taking that on board. Um, Right, so that view is, those are the views that are going to lead to thinking that your um, sound structures are only pitch and durational. Um, what Dodd's gonna call organizational features, pitch, rhythm, harmony, and melody. But um, the reason for including timbral properties is that, um, and especially if you are in fact an empiricist, um, often the temporal properties are going to be responsible for the aesthetic features of a work. So if we're going to 
if we're going to have a view that says the properties that are the relevant ones that are normative for our work are the ones that are going to get us the right kind of aesthetic appreciation, right? Then if there are aesthetic features that we're commonly going to point to, and that those aesthetic features are come from the, the timbral qualities, then we've got to have the timbral qualities be normative in the work as well as um, as the pitch and durational qualities. And so this becomes quite obvious when we think about orchestral works, specifically those of, say, Debussy and Ravel, um, or of Wagner, right? So when you're thinking about um, the exact effects that the going through the sequence of, of instruments in the orchestra gives you in Ravel's Bolero, then of course the timbral properties are going to matter quite a great deal because you're going to see all the different orchestral colors. Furthermore, you're going to get certain effects that come from the way in which specific timbres combine. And you're going to um, have composers that are going to exploit that um, to get certain kinds of effects from a string sound, from blended wind sounds, etc. So um, it's much more important and much more obvious that the aesthetic properties of a work are going to supervene on the temporal properties when you look at um, 19th and 20th century orchestral works than if you were Peter Kivy and you were looking at Baroque, uh, uh, Baroque trio sonatas, right? Okay, so, so we're gonna make the temporal properties normative in the works. And now we want to know how we're supposed to individuate these properties. Because it seems to me that we've got um, works um, as norm types, and those are supposed to specify which performances are proper performances. In addition, it's supposed to specify when a work is identical, when, when you've got different works. Right? So it seems like that's the direction that we have to go logically. We have to go from the work and indicate the, the properties such that we then get the proper performances. So it seems like you might have a couple different means of individuation. You might individuate by acoustic means, and you might individuate by psychoacoustic means. All right. So let's see what that would amount to if we were to individuate by acoustic means for pitch. Um, first of all, that you could do it is intuitively plausible. Um, musical notation is going to specify a pitch, right? And it's going to do so within a key or a scale system, right? So we're most familiar with um, Western notation. So you have um, pitches, you have an A major scale, and so you have the notation that goes along with this, and so you have your, your 12 chromatic notes, and you notate what that, you have what that note is going to be within the context of a key, within the context of a harmonic system that that composer is working in, but in many works you're not going to have a key, so in avant-garde works you're not going to have a key, but you might have a scale system that's implicit anyway, right? Um, so you're going to have a pitch that works within a context pitch system. Now, you might think that pitch is something acoustic, right? Pitch is going to correlate with objective frequencies of sounds. And these things are measurable in hertz. And so um, maybe we could have some sort of individuation procedure such that we correlate 
um, what the properties of the musical sound have to be in terms of ob objective features of tones. Now, if we did this, we'd have to admit a degree of vagueness. Um, and that's because, for a couple reasons. First of all, what your standard for correct pitch is going to be is going to vary, right? So um, a performance done by um, a youth orchestra is going to be is going to allow for a greater range of, of variation in what we're going to accept as an instance of that pitch than, say, um, what you want from a professional orchestra. Um, so now you might think, well, that doesn't matter. All of these are going to be um, acceptable instances of those pitches. So you know all those variations, but but. What it means for something to be a proper performance is going to vary according to this as well. Because you might want to say, well, this, given that it's a high school orchestra, counts as a proper performance of Tchaikovsky's Serenade for Strings. Well, if, if the symphony orchestra did the same thing and it was that level of out of tune, or, or you, you, know, it might even, you might even get wrong notes given the high school orchestra standard, you would then have to say that that symphony orchestra performance was no longer a proper performance. So that's a minor niggling point, but it's just that um, you have to admit that you want a pitch class to count as normative and not um, the precise acoustically specified frequency, right? So um, quite reasonable to say, pitch is not, musical pitch is not equivalent to acoustic frequency. Musical pitch is going to allow um, a tolerance interval, and what that um, tolerance interval is going to be is going to vary. Right. Um, and it turns out that what matters is not really so whether you've got um, a proper performance is not really a matter of compliance with the note name. How would we really evaluate that? Um, but what, what we want is that the overall pitch relations in the performance of that piece are convincing. Um, so, do I go, yeah, okay. What that's going to mean is that we evaluate pitch compl compliance with the pitch norms um, at a fairly global level, such that we get the right relationships between octaves and not really have we hit these frequencies, right? Um, and so that's done, that's how that's done is going to vary based on which instrument we're talking about. Right. So, um, what the proper compliance range of, 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 of A's for an oboe is going to be is going to be different from what it is for a piano because a piano is a fixed pitch, fixed pitch interval instrument. What's going to sound right for oboe um, is going to be more precise than what it's going to be for piano, although with piano it's going to be invariant, etc. So, turns out that um, we're going to have other considerations aside from trying to define it acoustically. Right. So just to look at 
defining durational properties by acoustic means. Again, you might initially think that it's plausible. Why? Um, again, it's a, something that musical notation specifies. Our metric relations are specified. Um, and the, these, again, are parameters that are measurable, right? So you can correlate these parameters with exact metronome markings. Um, and so in principle, you might think they're precise temporal measurements of notes. Now, again, just as it's absurd to think that musical tone is exact frequency, it's equally absurd to think that duration is precise temporal measurement. So what do we have instead? Again, it's a matter of relations. It's a matter of, um, of proportions, right? Not absolute duration. And so again, um, we have to admit a, a degree of vagueness into um, what uh, what durations within a tolerance range are going to be acceptable. And again, it's going to be done at a global level such that um, you need the relations across a whole piece to be convincing so that the staccato notes are shorter than the legato notes, so that they're consistent, so that they're convincing within what instrument it's being played on, etc. Okay, so what this seems to lead to is that actually we're individuating um, these properties by psychoacoustic means, not by acoustic means. Psychoacoustic means, so the difference between something being acoustic and it being psychoacoustic is the difference between something being pitched and it having frequency. Um, the difference between it having um, an overtone profile, so the characteristics of the frequencies, versus it having a tone color. So the psychoacoustic properties are simply the way that we hear the sounds. So a sound being bright as opposed to its overtone profile having a certain kind of shape, right? So, so, so pitch as a property of musical sounds is a psychoacoustic property. Frequency is an acoustic property, right? So it looks like, well, what we care about is the psychoacoustic property of pitch and the psychoacoustic properties of duration, not really the acoustic properties. But that's fine. So maybe we can individuate the properties, the necessary properties that way, right? So maybe, and it seems like with, um, with pitch and with duration, that's precisely what's going on. As I alluded to, um, we seem to know whether, um, say, an oboist has given us a faithful performance um, by whether we've got all the notes centered in the right spots so that they sound in tune, given that it's an oboe, given that it's in that key, given that it's playing with these other instruments. And so there's a kind of um, just standard, implicit standard among informed listeners that seems to appeal to the psychoacoustic properties of, of what convincing pitch is, rather than Hmm, was this an A or was it a B double flat? That, that's not relevant, right? Okay. So it seems like individuating, um, being able to tell whether a, a performance was faithful and is, is a proper performance um, by psychoacoustic means is plausible 
um, for for pitch and for for rhythm. So you might say, well, what's um, what exactly is that property? Well, the first note has to sound like do it by extension, and then the other notes have to sound convincing like this in relation to the first note, etc. So you would have something that would work something like that. Um, so this seems to be what's going on with the what I referred to as sort of tolerance intervals, so that you don't have to get an exact match of pitch, but you can accept a lot of things in a range, but you don't actually accept everything in that range. So what is timbre such that we're going to do something similar with timbre? Timbre is what acousticians call a catch-all category of sounds. Timbre includes every element, every element of, of sound, other than pitch or loudness, that's going to contribute to hearing two sounds as different from one another. Don doesn't really say what what timbre is. I think he's got um, a kind of intuitive grasp, and he seems to think that in face value we know what timbre is. Um, so the things that he he says to help us out um, are well, timbre is tone color. Um, and he talks about, well, a proper performance of the Beethoven Hammerklavier is going to have a piano-like quality. So whatever that piano-like quality is, that's timbre. These are the sorts of um, phrases that he uses. It doesn't give us much more than that. Um, well, but timbre is a lot more than tone color. Tone color is determined by the spectrum. So what you, you have... A frequency, say you have A440, that's your piano tone, you hit A and you get A440 vibrates at 440 hertz. But that's not the only thing that's going on in that piano tone because you have overtones. So it's also vibrating at 880 and at all the other um, harmonic overtones that you get when you've got a piano. Um, and the, those overtones are going to balance in a, in a characteristic way. Um, that's what I refer to as overtone frequencies, uh, sorry, uh, overtone spectrum. Um, and those, precisely which harmonics vibrate varies according to instrument in a characteristic way. Um, and so those, those um, contribute to tone color mostly. So the, the, re, the, readiness of a clarinet because you have different partials vibrating there versus the openness of a flute versus um, the ringingness of, of a violin sound to, to the brassiness of a trumpet. Those, that, those kinds of, of color type terms are what we're referring to um, and those are determined by spectrum. But actually timbre is a lot more than that because it has uh, it varies along a whole lot of other dimensions that determine what the musical sound is going to, to sound like, what any other sound would, would sound like as well, but in particular for musical sound. So the other dimensions that contribute to timbre are the qualities of an attack uh, and the qualities of the decay, uh, sustain and release qualities, 
typical frequency modulation, vibrato. So, so basically, um, if you're to really account for clarinet-like sound, you have to take into account how um, articulation hits the reed, which sets um, the vibrating column in motion, which um, is impeded by you know which tones, which holes are open, and which ones are not. Um, the rate at which you can get your notes to speak, the, the rate at which they decay, how they vibrate, the amount of sort of buzz you have with it. And so those are all the things that go into timbre. Um, and so as you may see, um, trying to specify timbre, like trying to get some kind of way of specifying what is normative for a work, what timbral properties are normative in the work, um, is going to be quite difficult. Um, and here's why. So it looks like you would need to specify both all the overtone profiles and all the characteristic articulations, all the characteristic vibrating um, bodies of the instruments, etc. Right? Because you need to specify timbre across all these dimensions. Um, and again, because um, acoustic means are really not what we're after when we're characterizing musical sound, what seems to matter again is what sounds convincing. Does it sound like um, a proper clarinet performance? Um, that is going to trump whether or not you do your Fourier analysis of the spectrum and it says, okay, yeah, this is within the right parameters of whether it's clarinet or not. That's not doing your, your acoustical analysis, just as it's sort of absurd in the um, pitch case and the, the temporal case, it's equally absurd in the timbral case. Uh, at some point, yeah, do you, you want to have a clarification? Katori question at this point? No, really. How, Paloma, how am I doing for time? Uh, you have seven more minutes. Okay, good. Okay, well, I'm towards the end of this argument. Okay. Um, so the problem with timbre, though, is that um, the individuation by psychoacoustic means are a lot less plausible for timbre than they are for, um, for pitch. Um, so Dodd says, well, all you need is to have some kind of grasp of what piano-like sounds are. So if you've got piano-like sounds, all right, then you've got a proper performance. Furthermore, if you have two works that indicate, that make piano-like sounds normative, whether or not they were produced by a piano, those are identical works for Dodd. Right? And he doesn't really tell us what piano-like sounds are supposed to be and how they're supposed to be individuated such that we could evaluate that. Right? Um, so the problem is we can recognize a whole lot more things as trumpet-like sound than would actually count as a proper musical performance. So there's a study by McAdams that takes um, trumpet sounds alters them by um, varying conditions. So take your 
take your sound, alter it by 10%, so just alter the wavelengths by 10%, alter the attack by 10%. Um, can you still recognize it as trumpet sound? Yes. Can you at 20%? Yes. Can you at 30%? Yes. At 50% less often. But you, there, what counts as trumpet sound allows of more distortion than would be allowable in the proper musical performance of a trumpet piece. Furthermore, you can go the other direction. Um, you can have any number of pieces that are going to allow for uncharacteristic sounds that are still going to be normative in that work. Now, you might have ways of indicating what those are in the score. Nevertheless, this idea that we have trumpet sound and we know what that is, um, is suspect. Furthermore, um, recognitional uh, just saying, just putting psychoacoustic and sort of recognitional um, properties as uh, saying that is the test to whether or not we've got a category. So it, it category is well formed just in case you can um, individuate according to recognition. Um, that doesn't seem right either because there are things that if if you were to, there, there are conditions under which you're not going to recognize the characteristic sound. Not when it's altered, but when it's combined with other things. So there's some interesting studies that show if you're looking at um, a marimba player striking a marimba and you're hearing a clarinet, you hear it as a marimba. Not everyone does that, but there are enough such that um, the, the point is simply that the recognitional, um, the, the components that go into recognition of timbre are highly variable and a lot less, um, we have a lot less grasp on that than we, we would need in order to make this um, a well-defined category that we can appeal to for individuation of works. So, seems to be an intuitive conception of instrumental timbre as analogous to color, like visual color. And we seem to think, yeah, okay, so I know what my um, prototypical trumpet sound is, and, you know, if I want uh, trumpet work, I'm going to apply trumpet paint across my, across my pitches and durations, and so now I'm going to have um, trumpet timbral properties as normative. But what's actually normative in the work are the precise acoustic qualities of every note, um, such that they sound like the natural variations made by a performance or of, of the specified instrument, right? So you have to get um, the right relationships of attacks. You have to get the right kind of decay. You have to get the right dynamic range across the instrument. That's what those things are actually normative at the level of the work. And those things are components of timbre. Um, but they're components of timbre as properties of individual notes. But these things are not specified by any structural element in musical notation in most cases. Certainly they're not going to be in the large majority of musical works that we take as, as prototypical, say a Beethoven symphony, a Mozart symphony, uh, a Schumann piano, trio, etc. Right? Um, we're not going to be specifying the precise timbral variations. However, the normativity is still there. Right. So it seems that what Dodd has done is tried to take, in order to reconcile the ontological component of his view with 
um, this empiricist uh, component of his view. He's tried to say, all right, well, you have all your structural properties, and let's make, and those, so those are the things you can abstract. So they can be um, the kinds of things that this abstract type can indicate. Fine. Um, so now let's make timbre abstract in a similar way. Let's imagine that it, it's a structural property. Um, but the thing is, it's just not at the level it would need to be that um, dictates the norms of what proper instances are going to be, right? So the problem is that either it's going to require that we admit strings of piano-like sounds as proper performances that um, we wouldn't actually admit, or we're going to um, have to specify the, the timbre properties in terms of the very, very specific ways of how instruments vibrate, such that you're um, indicating all the attack properties, all the, the, all the kinds of variations that you would get over a convincing performance. Now, why is this a problem for Dodd? Dodd admits that, um, well, I, you know, it's fine that um, the way that we refer to timbre is through instrumental means, but um, that doesn't show us that there's any norm going on other than what the thing sounds like. So, um, I don't know if I want this slide next. <coughs> right. um, works are numerically identical just in case they're acoustically indistinguishable. That's his condition. Right. So, yeah, this is what I want. Um, so he has this sort of thought experiment that he calls the perfect timbral synthesizer. And so what the perfect timbral synthesizer does is, is it gives you a performance, well, yeah, it's going to give you um, an instance of the work that's going to sound like whatever natural occurring instrument you want. So if, you've, if we're talking about, um, his example is, is the Hammerklavier Sonata, then um, if we have another composer who is writing for the perfect timbral synthesizer, and he specifies that the synthesizer sound exactly like what a piano would sound like, then those are the same works, because the same properties are normative in the works, even though they're produced by different means. So, all right, fine, I just... You know, I have a sense of what um, the tam timbre sounds like, but it's produced by a different mean. Fine. Um, he's going to say that it doesn't matter that we have to refer to those um, sounds at the level of, um, of the piano. But um, the problem is that he really hasn't thought through what it would be for the perfect timbre synthesizer to allow piano-like sounds, right? So, because either you could have a, either the following is going to count as a, as a perfect timbre synthesizer, right? So, imagine I have a computer program so that I take my acoustic definitions of frequencies that randomly generate something close to 440 when I need an A, something close to um, 392 when I needed a, a G or wh whatever it is, right? So that I just randomly get something close so I don't have to always have it be 440 and it doesn't have to be exact and I get the natural variation, but I do that randomly, 
right? So I'm hitting what are supposed to be all the norms at the level of um, each pitch class. And I do that for, um, for rhythm, and I do that for timbre, however I might do that. But that means you're going to either have to say that that counts as, um, as a proper, both as a proper performance of the Hammerklavier Sonata as written for piano, and it's going to count as, if, if the work is written that way, it's going to count as the identical work as the, the Hamir Sonata, right? So both of those consequences there. So the consequence for performance and the consequence for work individuation. Right? If you don't want to say that, if you want your perfect timbral synthesizer to get it better so that it really sounds more like um, what the piano would do or what any other acoustic instrument would do, it looks like you have to get the perfect timbral synthesizer to replicate the physical properties of the vibrating bodies, right? So you need it to be so precise that um, if it's a perfect timbral synthesizer of a clarinet, it's made of wood. Um, it seems as though, so that you've got all your attack parts, so, so you end up either having a, a perfect temporal synthesizer working in a world that has different acoustic laws, in which case anything goes, and that's not relevant to what, to how we think about timbre here, or it's, it ends up being it's not that we merely use instruments to um, to refer to characteristic sounds, but that the only way of specifying what that characteristic sound is going to be in any way that you could set up a criteria is going to have to um, bring in the facts, physical facts of that instrument. So we're going to collapse into a kind of instrumentalism, so that it. The instrumental means aren't, aren't normative because they're specified by the score, but simply because they're specified by the acoustic properties. So uh, that's my general problem for, uh, for this kind of approach. So just a few final points. Um, this problem is, ends up being generalizable to other sound structure kinds of views. It's going to be a problem whenever you've got something specified sort of logically and mathematically, and then you're trying to set up what the right parameters are in actual physical sound that's going to reproduce them. Um, because there's norms that are governing these acoustic properties that are in addition to the structural properties specified in scores. All right. That's most obvious with timbre, but it, turn, it turns out that that was the case for, for pitch and duration as well, as we talked about when we talked about psychoacoustic properties. The norms don't seem to be of the type that can be included by a sonicist, right? Um, certainly not a sonicist of the, the kind that's going to take a work to be uh, something that's going to indicate properties. You have to be able to specify those properties, but their norms to what those proper properties would be seem to be in addition to these structural features. Right. Um, so 
what it seems to be is that there's this illusion of ontological priority for works, if you're thinking that works are these abstract structures, and that they're going to dictate um, or indicate what the proper performances are going to be. Now, um, anyone who holds that kind of view immediately grants that the, um, the the proper the proper properties that are, are normative don't fully uh, determine what the performance is going to be because they're going to allow for several correct interpretations. But I have a different point, which is that actually, in order to get the right norms um, to write to get the right set of performances in, that give us the right um, the right sound qualities you need other norms that go beyond just the abstract structures as indicated um, mathematically and by notation, right? So that's, that's the final lesson, is that um, we've had this illusion that sound structures capture what we care about with musical sound um, and that they capture the things that are normative. But in fact, there's quite a lot that's normative that's that's not captured by the um, by considering uh, properties as, as as indicated by abstract works. So, thank you.